The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, culture, and law. I am Abraham Litwin-Logan, and today we will be discussing the potential for the existence of intelligent extraterrestrial life, commonly referred to as ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence. When there's 10,000 stars for every grain of sand in the observable universe on Earth, and about a million planets in our galaxy using very conservative estimates, why have we not encountered extraterrestrial life, commonly known as aliens? In delving into this question, we're going to discuss the Fermi paradox, UFOs, the Drake equation, amongst other things. But first, I'm joined today by Michael. How's it going? I'm good, thank you. And Malik, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for asking. As well as Harish, how's your Saturday? It's been going good. It's a bit late in the night. How's it going, guys? Going well. So maybe let's start off by quickly going around and just giving me an answer of, to this very simple but very complex question. Do you think we are alone in the universe? No, I don't. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll defend my position later, but uh, we'll just go through it first. Okay. I, I personally think that we are alone in the observable universe. What do you think, Harish? Um, I think that we are alone in the observable universe, or at least there's no evidence to suggest otherwise at this point. I personally believe that we are not alone in the observable universe because it's very narcissistic to think that we were the only life form capable of raising to intelligence and that we are in that sense unique. And uh, hence, I don't believe we are alone. That's interesting. And we'll go into that further later in our conversation. But I think for our listeners uh, who may be wondering why we're talking about aliens and the universe and this sort of thing, when our podcast is largely focused on politics and law, we should give them some backstory. So as uh, many people may now be aware, um, recently the Pentagon um, confirmed previously leaked um, footage of UFOs or in fact footage of UFOs. This meaning that the Pentagon was unable to identify these flying objects, which fighter uh, jet pilots uh, for the US Air Force had um, recorded in, I believe, 2017 and um, 2014. So this came to a big shock to the world, I suppose, because the Pentagon usually doesn't confirm things like this. And if you actually watch the videos, these flying objects are going incredibly quickly and they don't look like any sort of plane or any object known to man. So this sort of sparked the discussion uh, about UFOs more generally. But I, I think if we zoom out uh, of this picture, why, why are people interested in aliens and you know alien, I guess, creatures in the first place? Is there any special reason for this? Well, that's a question that I personally thought about for a long time when researching uh, this topic. And evidence for this interest in extraterrestrial life is the Kelton research study revealing that 36% of Americans believe in UFOs. We have set up various radio telescopes to detect artificial signals. Uh, the Invade Area 51 meme last year was very popular. <laughs> and uh, there, there's a lot of evidence for uh, th this fascination. And I came up with three potential reasons. The first one being the fact that since we feel as though we have truly explored uh, the Earth to uh, its full extent, we want to explore the universe now, and to our theorizing, we might encounter 
However, I just want to add that it's mirror because the National Ocean Service estimates that more than 80% of our ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. Another uh, potential reason I came up with is the fact that uh, we believe that we need the support of a superior life form in order to solve the many issues that we have to deal with nowadays, perhaps climate change being the most significant. And a third potential reason is uh, the fact that we're constantly being influenced by the media to think about extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life forms. Uh, for example, uh, there is a plethora of movies involving aliens, Independence Day, Alien, Guardians of the Galaxy. And from my limited experience with the History Channel, about half of their content uh, is the discussion of aliens. <laughs> so maybe this has to do uh, with uh, this fascination for aliens that we as, uh, as, as the world have. Right. Um, I think Malik's point too is something that um, I would agree with in particular because I think there's a tendency for people to seek explanations. And when there's no reasonable scientific explanation, it's always useful for you to find, um, I guess, supernatural beings or at least um, beings beyond our present day understanding to fill in those gaps in um, understanding or reasoning. So where I think in the past, um, in, in more ancient civilizations, things like the idea of um, multiple gods or the idea of, a, of religion um, filling that gap has now been superseded by this fascination with extraterrestrial life because it seems more scientific and it seems more, I guess, realistic. So I think that's the, that's the driving force that's fueling um, the interest in UFOs that has been seeing a steady increase since the 1940s and has become quite prominent even to the point where we see national and international organizations acknowledging the existence of a potential for there being extraterrestrial life forms, even if it may not be the most likely um, explanation. But at the same time, if you go and watch these videos released by the Pentagon and there's, you know, a plethora, as you both sort of alluded to, of, you know, popular sightings and pictures and videos of UFOs, which were just released. I mean, what could they be? They look, they look so unearthly, uh, I would say. And, you know, some scientists have said they could be weather phenomena or something else. But, I mean, it seems largely unconvincing. But who knows? But anyways, I think this sort of brings us to talking about what we have done um, as the Earth, I suppose, to search for um, other life forms, other intelligence creatures, which Harris you alluded to. So um, there's been the SETI project, S-E-T-I project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it's been going on for about uh, 50 or so years. And I came uh, across this really um, interesting, um, I guess, statistic about it is that the amount of the sky that has been searched by this project is equivalent to taking one glass out of the ocean. So this is over 50 years, and the amount of the sky that has been searched is so little. Again, like I said, it's equivalent to just taking one glass of water out of the entire ocean on Earth. So it's this tiny amount, which you know leads us sort of to, I guess, the logical conclusion that because these efforts have been so limited, we can't say because... Um, we haven't found anything that there isn't anything. What do you guys think about this? Uh, just before like, I sort of move on to answer the question, I kind of want to go back and address the, the term that we used 
um, like aliens or extraterrestrial, you know, intelligence, right? What exactly do you guys mean by that? Because, I mean, is it like a single-celled organism living in an ocean? Do we count that? Or are we talking about like multicellular, able to communicate, created society, something along the lines of, you know, like another civilization altogether, right? Because it's just like, is it is there life out there? Or is are there, you know, potentially, I guess, other civilizations out there is probably the question I was going to ask. Well... I don't believe that many people believe that there's no form of life out there. I, I think that there is pretty much a consensus that there's at least microorganisms in some planet uh, in, in the universe. So I think that when, at least when I say aliens or extraterrestrial life forms, I refer to some sort of intelligence life form that is at least multicellular and capable of well forming a civilization. So for example, many tests that deal with extraterrestrial life forms talk about the development uh, of technologies capable of being detectable as a requirement for uh, uh, being considered uh, an intelligence life form. Yeah, I think that's largely the consensus um, amongst the scientific community when we're talking about ETI, as well as um, varying life forms on other planets. But if we want to return back to this, this SETI search, I guess we can ask, I guess, a more broad question of, should we even be searching in the first place if over 50 years we've been you know, devoting hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, like I mentioned, we've searched, you know, a glass of the ocean's worth. I mean, that's nothing. Yeah, I guess um, this just speaks to the fact that even though we've come so far as a civilization, humans are just limited by the technology that we possess at present. So 50 years gives you this, this output of this glass in the ocean sort of um, analogy. So it tells you how expansive the observable universe is. It also tells you how small we are relative to it. So I guess um, uh, on, a, on a practical level, it doesn't seem like very valuable because it doesn't necessarily um, improve what we would think as um, useful indicators of qualities or quality of life, um, like expanding our economy or giving more jobs to people or just uh, addressing inequality, that sort of thing. But I think it speaks to an even more fundamental need of human civilization, which is the need to find out more. And I think that's the thing that drives institutions like SETI and institutions um, that we think of more in the mainstream, like CERN, for example, which will have eventual cascading effects. So I think it's not an entirely worthless exercise because a lot of the times we, we can't, we don't really know exactly where our research will end up helping us in more pragmatic ways. And I think there's also inherent value in just searching for uh, new ideas and looking for different things. So I don't think it's an entirely fruitless exercise is where I place myself. I believe that there is some value in uh, looking for these extraterrestrial life forms, because if we make the assumption that there is extraterrestrial life forms that has been developed and has uh, capabilities and innovations that are different to the capabilities and innovations that so far uh, the human race has discovered, then I do see the potential uh, for a lot of growth uh, for our civilization if uh, the extraterrestrial civilization that we do discover were uh, willing to well share those innovations and uh, their knowledge with us. Uh, because if you look throughout history, there's a lot of positive examples from uh, different cultures interacting with each other. I do agree that uh, there's also unfortunate examples of uh, 
well, the superior culture or civilization imposing uh, their values or imposing themselves over the inferior civilization. But I, I think that potentially uh, there, there could be room for, for positive growth and for a positive uh, understanding between both civilizations. Yeah, I think that's uh, a very interesting point, Malik. I personally wouldn't be very quick to assume that, you know, this um, other civilization if there exists one, would be willing to, you know, share technology and stuff with us. But we can discuss that a bit later, maybe when we talk about the Fermi paradox. But I, I just wanted to mention one more thing about Sati, which I think is uh, really interesting and um, assists in molding our discussion of it. And the thing is, um, with Sati, you're not really searching for um, extraterrestrial intelligence. We're searching for extraterrestrial technology. And um, the important distinction between the two is, let's say there was a civilization, you know, um, a galaxy over or at the end of our galaxy or whatever, and they were admitting, uh, emitting all sorts of, you know, frequencies and that sort of thing. They could be, you know, a million years older than us, and they could be emitting things that we don't even understand or we couldn't even fathom or they could be younger than us and they're emitting different things so even if we search that area of the sky that area of the ocean and the analogy i gave we may not even be looking the right way so doesn't this sort of further the idea of it doesn't really make sense to look because it's so astronomically small the probability that we'll actually find something admitting the right frequency that we're looking at in the right part of the sky that we're looking at isn't that quite convincing that we shouldn't be spending all this money on uh, SATI and programs like SATI? Well, I think it's sort of the idea that the technology now is moving, is progressing very slowly because in terms of uh, traveling through space, it's, we are sort of, it's, we're very new to this whole, this, this area of technology, right? And if you look at like across history, humans, first begun using tools to now what we have, right? The, uh, the large bulk of our technological advancements have come over the past 50 years, maybe, right? Maybe even less than that. So it's difficult for us to say that, you know, right now we can't see it, so it's not worth it because we might not be able to, we might not be able to uh, uh, our technology or, you know, factor in that, uh, that we might be searching for the right thing. But we don't know unless we sort of hit that hit that stride where we can say, okay, you know, we've come this far. This is the, the, the technology we have now. We've searched however much we, and this is the time that we have to stop, right? Because we've put too much effort into it and there's just nothing out there, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily also, I don't believe that the end goal of finding extraterrestrial life is, it's just to find it, right? It's sort of, I mean, we, we have a whole bunch of reasons to look for planets that might hold life or civilization because, you know, we're, we're on the, our last legs with the Earth in terms of climate change and whatnot. So we might have to look for, we might have to start looking for another planet. And I mean, it's not necessarily something that is a foregone conclusion where you can say, you know, or just because it's so difficult to see something that therefore we should just stop. I don't think, I don't think that's, I don't think that's something that we should. You know, I don't think this is something that we should stop doing. I think adding on to Michael's point, it's also important to keep in mind that while SETI primarily looks for 
life on other in other galaxies on other planets a lot of their work also has to do with other forms of research to find out more about the about deep space and um, understanding um, the universe around us and that's going to further our understanding of the way the world works and the universe works which is which are things I, th I think are inherently interesting to humans. So I think it's like Michael alluded to, it's not a foregone conclusion that the, that the efforts that SETI is taking is useless because it will naturally cascade onto other areas of research that we might not even expect to understand at this point. Yeah, I think you're right, Harish. It's not like um, we're just searching and we're not gaining any benefits, even if we don't find um, extraterrestrial life. We're learning so much about the universe and so much about science. So there are definitely benefits. And I'll also mention that um, we have found one thing with SETI, which is referred to as the wow signal, which was found in, um, I think, 1977, if I remember correctly. And it remains to date the only signal we've we found. Um, which we you know, can't explain. And the signal was a 72 second sequence of some sort of transmission. I'm not really sure exactly what it was, but it was never uh, able to be reproduced. So we haven't really, um, I guess, thought too much about it, but it has you know, taken on, on its own, I guess, sort of life form in popular media and science fiction and that sort of thing. So I think maybe let's move now towards the Fermi paradox, which we've mentioned a few times. I, I guess I'll just briefly introduce the concept and then we can discuss whether we believe it's true, whether it really is a paradox or whether, you know, Fermi even came up with it himself. Um, but essentially the argument sort of goes like, if there are other intelligent beings in the universe or in the galaxy, then they would have eventually over time achieved space travel, achieved the ability to colonize other planets. And accordingly, they would have explored and colonized this galaxy um, as we on Earth have explored and colonized every part of Earth. However, um, they are not here. And therefore, these intelligent beings do not exist. And therefore, we are alone. So that's a very basic essence of what the Fermi paradox is. And it's not, you know, um, accepted by the entire scientific community. And we can go into some objections to it. Um, but personally, for me, I think uh, the Fermi paradox must exist. And I haven't really heard anything too convincing that suggests otherwise. And that forms personally, my belief that we are alone in the universe. If I can just add on to that, I'd like to speak a little bit about Michael Hart and uh a research paper he published in 1975 entitled An Explanation for the Absence of Extraterrestrials on Earth. In it, he outlines four potential reasons for why we haven't had any evidence for, of extraterrestrial life. The first one being that aliens never came to Earth because of a physical difficulty that makes uh, space travel essentially infeasible. That difficulty could be either astronomical, biological, or uh, resulting from engineering. Another potential reason is that aliens chose never to come to Earth because uh, perhaps we are very insignificant and uh, there are other more valuable uh, life forms out there that uh, were chosen before Earth uh, to visit. A third reason would be that advanced civilizations arose too recently for aliens to reach us. So perhaps there are other uh, intelligence life forms out there, but there are at either a similar development stage uh, to ourselves or uh, a little bit behind. And a final proposition is that aliens have visited Earth in the past, but we have not observed them. What do you guys think? 
I've, um, well, well, firstly, I want to recommend to our listeners, there's this really great book. I haven't finished reading it, but I'm about halfway done. And it's the version two of Where Are They? And it's written um, by an amalgamation of, you know, the leading experts in this field, Hart included. And they talk about this. So firstly, you mentioned the physical explanation of, you know, why we haven't encountered galactic civilizations, I suppose. And I guess fundamental to that is the obvious um, obstacle, which is just the sheer size of the distances between stars and that sort of thing. But there's a variety of uh, problems I have with this. Um, For example, why are we assuming that intelligent extraterrestrials have the same lifespan um, as us? What if they have lifespans of 5,000 years and then a voyage of, you know, a hundred years or 500 years may not be such a um, difficult issue. Then it also like generally the idea of um, that ships won't be able to carry um, enough fuel to go these long distances. He also talks about, but Again, we have to remember how younger civilization is. Surely we haven't discovered the most efficient fuels, but we've already discovered nuclear fuel, which we haven't really been able to create due to the rarity of some of the resources necessary for it. But it's been hypothesized that if we were able to mine enough of these resources, we would be able to um, go like essentially really far in, in terms of our galaxy and we would able to go far enough even in uh, the context of our civilization being really young and then there's also you know the sociological explanations which you talked about as well as I guess the time-based explanations I I don't know if others want to jump in what what do you guys think are these you know convincing does this explain why we haven't encountered life I think the explanations vary in their um, in their persuasion so I think Abraham you alluded to the problem the problems that are present with these alternative explanations very well because they underlie a lot of um, pre-existing assumptions about the way life on other planets might have evolved as well as the limitations or lack thereof of technology that is available so i think um, in essence what we can conclude is that there's a great deal of uncertainty surrounding um, exactly whether um, extraterrestrial life forms will be able to uh, arrive and visit us or not. And so one of the, uh, the tools that scientists have used to explain or to figure out the probability of extraterrestrial life forms visiting us is um, this equation called the Drake equation formulated by Frank Drake in 1961. And what he tried to do was to um, construct different probabilities involved in the existence of alien life, such as the rate of star formation, the fraction of stars with planets, the number of planets per star that would be habitable, the fraction of those planets that would develop life, and the fractions that would develop intelligent life, and um, the length of time that will be required before such communicable civilizations are detectable by us. All these things... Um, occupy a spectrum and what is interesting is that um, there are lots of different scientists that have posited um, different explanations and different findings as to how likely um, there are civilizations and what the numbers are 
that would be that are possibly detectable that and that are intelligent. So um, the first scientific meeting, in, uh, which had ten attendees, including Drake and Carl Sagan, for example, speculated a number between a thousand and a hundred million civilizations in the Milky Way alone. Um, what's interesting, however, is that all of them use um, point. Uh, assumptions about the values of the different um, fractions that are probabilities I was alluding to earlier, such as the rate of star formation, so on and so forth. And what's interesting is that there's this 2018 study that suggests that the Fermi paradox shouldn't even exist in the first place because, or at least the way it's been postulated in, um, in previous um, estimations shouldn't exist in the first place because all of them assume a particular value associated with each um, each probability, when instead they should be considering the full range of probabilities that are available. And it concludes that actually the fact that we don't have any life apart from us in the observable universe isn't something that's too out of uh, too out of the ordinary for us to expect. And it's quite persuasive because it adds a new dimension to the way we've been thinking about. Um, about this, about the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox, which is that we're looking, we're making assumptions about each individual value of the probability instead of considering the full range of probabilities each value can assume. Yep, and what's important to note about the Drake equation, um, for listeners who may have been a little confused, since it's such a, I guess, mathematic and science-based sort of idea, I suppose, is that different scientists have posited different values for the variables in the equation that Harris Harris talked about. And the result has been wildly different um, estimations, the amount of Earth-like planets or possible Earth-like planets in the galaxy, ranging from uh, it being likely that there would be less than one Earth-like planet to there being um, millions of Earth-like planets. So, um, without question, there is no scientific consensus on the correct variables for the Drake equation. But um, I, I think even if we uh, accept the lack of a consensus and don't speculate on the validity of certain variables, I still think uh, analysis of the Fermi paradox is warranted. And I think maybe we should um, talk about some of the other objections that Malik uh, detailed to the Fermi paradox. For example, um, like Malik mentioned, perhaps intelligence uh, life forms simply don't want to come here. Maybe we're too primitive. Maybe we're not. Uh, they're just not interested in us. Is this something you guys agree with, Michael? What do you think? Uh, I think one of the few theories that I read up on the one that I have, I feel holds most weight for me. It's uh, by David Brin. I hope I'm not butchering his name. Uh, he's a he's He's a NASA consultant who also wrote like a couple of best-selling books. And he has this uh, water walls hypothesis, which uh, so he basically states that our Earth skates the very inner edge of our sun, which uh, our sun's habitable zone, right? So essentially that habitable zone for us would be close enough to the sun that the water doesn't turn to ice, right? But far enough that the surface temperature isn't ridiculously hot so we just don't put out and die right so you see a lot of uh worlds where because i mean water is one of the most important things that uh that's required to sustain life that's why you know they're like oh it's water mass yeah you know we're always we're constantly looking for water first 
right? And so if you look at, uh, like, say, for example, Jupiter's Europa, right, one of the moons is on Jupiter, it's really far away from the sun, right? So all this, there's a large chunk of ice, like a huge chunk of ice above the, like, that covers the planet, right? But underneath that, there's, there's sort of, high, there's sort of uh, reasoning to state that could possibly sustain life at the levels where the water isn't ice. Right, and it's protected from uh, crater impacts, you know, like uh, just everything else in general that might come from space. So it's so then he goes on to say that even if we find, you know, like we go out there and we find water, we find extraterrestrial intelligence, it might not be the kind of intelligence that we are looking for. You know, it might take the form of like uh, some sort of extraterrestrial dolphins, whales, or squid some sort of water-based life form that doesn't have the ability to uh, for space travel to begin with, right? Because also, it's the Earth has a 32% continental mass, which is, which is quite high for water-based worlds. So which means that you, you think about the stuff that, that we, that humans came up with because of the land mass that we have, right? Like fire, oil you know all these all these various things that allow us to take the space other planets might not have so i think that's very interesting to think of because i mean when, when it comes back down to it it's you always look at it in terms it would be ridiculously narcissistic for us to for us to believe that every any civilization out there that would be considered intellectual would resemble our civilization because we share 70 percent of our genes with uh, an acorn worm, which is, you know, like we share the same ancestor with worms, right? 70% of our, our genes are shared with this worm, and we can't, we can't even communicate with the worm, right? And that's on our planet, and we've been around each other for like five, 500 million years. So, so it's, that, it's that idea that I think it's quite narcissistic for us to believe that, you know, oh, if it, if it looks like me and sounds like me, it's intelligent. And if it doesn't, then it's not. I think the parameters have to be changed in terms of what we look at when we talk about intelligence. But if I bring it back to the Fermi paradox and just look at that in isolation, I think it's quite it's it's quite understandable to say that there is intelligence, but it's not exactly the ones that we might be able to we might be able to contact in the way that we are trying to contact them. Yeah, and I think um, even if we were to expand our scope, the fact is that. There are lots of conditions that have to presuppose life, right? Um, you need to, we need um, abiotic um, molecules to form some sort of um, self-replicating mechanism so that we can produce life form. Uh, in our case, it was a genetic transition from RNA to DNA. Um, and it could be a different model of um, transcripting that can occur on, in other in other intelligent life. I, I guess the, the, the thing that underscores all these ideas is the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding any particular prediction we make, which makes it difficult for us to assign particular values to the variables that were discussed in the Drake equation, the, the different probabilities, which is why I think even alternative examples may not necessarily give us a good or even meaningful explanation. And that, 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 that is why the researchers in the 2018 study I cited from Oxford concluded that there's a 21% chance that we might very well be alone in the Milky Way or in the observable universe. 
I think that we must also consider the possibility and the high probability of extinction uh, of civilizations because there's a, a high likelihood that many of the civilizations out there will take a long time to develop the technology necessary for interstellar or uh, intergalactical uh, travel. We ourselves haven't been able to accomplish that yet and we might be wiped out before we ever will be able to reach that capability. So that's a real possibility for all other civilizations as well. And that is something that is not exactly considered in the Drake equation, but arguably should be considered. And that is something else that might have or might explain why we haven't been visited yet by forms of extraterrestrial uh, beings. Maybe uh, the lifespan of civilization is simply too short for interstellar uh, travel to be as common or as popular as suggested by uh, the, uh, the equation. Yeah, and this is a very popular thing to talk about in reference to the Fermi paradox, is the notion that there's a block, I guess, in the development of intelligent life forms, which means um, either we have passed this block and uh, we're incredibly lucky and we're probably the only intelligent life form in the universe, or the block is yet to be passed by us, which is also very possible. And it means that our extinction extinction is you know, pretty much inevitable. And there's been a, a multitude of theories as to what this block is. Um, Harish men mentioned uh, one briefly about the about RNA, um, as well as there's, you know, a variety of other uh, biomolecular explanations of what this block could be, but most of these postulate that we've already passed the block. But sort of what Malik was in talking about, perhaps the block is something so as simple as um, nuclear war, perhaps Every intelligent civilization, you know, creates nuclear weapons and they blow themselves up. Or maybe it's climate change. No civilization has been able to expand to other planets quickly enough to stop climate change in their respective environments. Maybe it's artificial intelligence even. Um, things like this. So there's a variety of blocks and we can just be, you know, hypothesizing about whether or not we've passed these. And uh, I guess we can never really know um, until we do. Uh, hopefully uh, colonize no, the no. galaxy and the universe. No, but no, we'll, lifetime. But we'll see. Hopefully. Definitely not in our lifetime. But what, what I found really interesting, and this is sort of unrelated, but when I was reading this, um, this book, I, a lot of the research they were citing was done in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and a little bit in the early 80s. And they were really incredibly optimistic about what could be done in the uh, coming decades, like really huge scientific developments. And they were confident, a lot of these scientists, that we'd be nearing, you know, the ability to colonize local planets or mine local asteroids, not that far from now. And it really seems like we haven't been doing that much recently on that path. So at least I, I find that quite interesting how optimistic these, you know, scientists were, and I guess how we've sort of let them down. I mean, uh, you only have to go back about like 20 years to look at the old movies and, you know, they're always like, you know, in the, in the year 2003 or something, and then it's like a bunch of flying cars and futuristic civilization. But I think we've taken a very different path. And I think also the optimism comes from not knowing how difficult things might have been. I think space travel is something that sounds plausible, but in in fact, in practice at least, is ridiculously difficult given the point we are at now in terms of technology. I found it very interesting that 
Abraham, you mentioned that many of the papers cited in the book that you're reading come from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Because during that time, there was a space war between the United States and the Soviet Union. So maybe that can explain why there was so much development at that time. Because since the, the end of the Soviet Union, uh, arguably the investment in space travel has declined. And that may uh, explain why we aren't advancing as quickly as we were during those decades in which the space war was something uh, big and something that motivated both uh, superpowers to invest in uh, space travel and the exploration uh, of the universe. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And there's a quote that stood out to me. I don't have it with me right now, but essentially it was um, talking about the current investment, current being in the 1970s investment in space-related research and, and travel. And um, the quote went something along the lines of, um, and we can expect that um, investment will only increase or decrease slightly with regards to this space investment. And, and in reality, we've seen the exact you know, opposite. Research has been cut dramatically. SETI, like we were talking about earlier, isn't funded by the government in the U.S. at all. It's a nonprofit being funded by donations primarily. So I guess this sort of brings us to the question of perhaps, is this something we should be spending money on? Or was the, is the government wrong to cut these programs when, you know, we've been to the moon, we've sent um, rovers to Mars, I suppose, we've sent uh, satellites up. Do we really need to focus much more when, you know, colonization of, you know, asteroids and the like seems to be so far away? Well, personally, I believe that there are more pressing needs at the moment. Uh, for example, we are dealing with a global crisis in climate change, and that's not, not going away in the foreseeable future unless we actually do something to solve the issue. So I do agree that government in the world should perhaps spend uh, their resources elsewhere and not necessarily in space exploration for the moment. Right. I think uh, it's about, and I just want to ask some of the question to all four, all four of us well. Um, so going back to the idea that Abraham brought to us about blockers, right? Potential blockers for civilization and sort of the end of humanity as we see it. I just want to know what do you guys think would be the most potential, like the, the one with the most potential, like if humanity was the end and we, that, you know, the end of our, our journey into space or through space, what exactly do you think it would be? You know, like climate change, resource depletion, artificial intelligence, you know, wh whatever it may be. What do you guys think? I think it would be a mixture of resource depletion and climate change because those are the two biggest existential threats to us now. And we can see huge swaths of um, civilization just going underwater because of climate change. And we also see a depletion in resources with us looking at alternatives, even though the alternatives don't seem to be as promising as we had in originally hoped. Um, but I guess, uh, I, I'm not sure, like there, there's so many existential threats that I'm not sure if if investing in 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 resources like space exploration or SETI is a good idea, but what I can say is that uh, programs like NASA and um, the Soviet program have led to lots of different discoveries in the past because of um, innovation for the sake of for the sake of knowledge and for the sake of discovery. Things like camera phones. Um, scratch-resistant lenses, CAT scans were all products that were originally developed in NASA and then had commercial application. So I, I wouldn't be 
so quick to say that investment in these alternative programs that don't seem to have a significant practical impact is necessarily a good idea because I think there's a lot of value that we don't seem to see at this point that's difficult to predict but will eventually have value for us when we do eventually come around to discovering and developing these ideas. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Uh, personally, I think I'm a little more optimistic in that I think we've already passed this blocker, which is, I guess, uh, scientifically known as the great filter. So I think it was this um, very low probability biomolecular event, which or has already occurred, which is called abiogenesis. Um, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And essentially it's this um, process whereby um, the first self-replicating molecules become increasingly complex through randomly occurring chemical processes. What that really means, I'm not really that sure, but I know it's very low probability and we've already, it's already happened to us. And generally I'd like to think I'm an optimist. So I think um, we're the only species that has the potential to become galactic conquerors, and I think maybe we will. I think I agree with uh, Abe that we have surpassed that blocker, and uh, I think abiogenesis is a good uh, guess as to what that blocker was. Uh, shout out to Ms. Kale, who taught me about abiogenesis in IV Bio. But uh, on the possibility that we still have not passed that blocker, and there is one yet to pass, I would say perhaps it could be overpopulation. Now, I, I don't adhere to the Malthusian doctrine or Malthusian thoughts, but I do believe that uh, overpopulation will become uh, an ever more pressing issue in, in the future. Okay, so I think that's a good place for us to conclude on. Although, Malik, I completely disagree with you about overpopulation, but I think that could be a topic for another, another uh, episode in its entirety, I suppose. Um, for our listeners, I hope this was an interesting discussion for you. I know, as I mentioned earlier, this sort of was straying away from our typical discussion, and um, most of us don't really have um, very enhanced uh, mathematic or uh, scientific knowledge on the topic. So we were all, I guess, going by the research we did. So um, with that, we'd like to hear some, I guess, reviews from you. Is this something you want us to continue doing, delving into topics which are uh, really interesting in our opinion, but maybe are sort of out of the zone of our uh, expertise? So just a couple notes before we go, as always, if you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or like our page on Facebook at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you so much for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.